So it's not enough to just have that great new idea. In fact, some of these great new ideas are a dime a dozen. What you have to be able to do is to put it into practice. And that's where I think the magic happens. I'm Gil Galanos and welcome to StoryMark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them and the mark they leave. This is the next installment of StoryMark Spotlight, where we hear from young leaders about their journey after the Israel trek. On today's show, educator, consultant, strategic advisor, and creator of the Berkeley Changemaker, Laura Hasner. Laura Hasner, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell me a little bit about growing up. How do you describe your childhood and early life? I had a really super happy childhood, very lucky. I was an only child. I was born to a mom who was an educator. So I went to a great series of public schools that I think really shaped my love for education. When I was in the sixth grade, I was at a middle school that was predominantly white middle class and everyone looked the same. And when you all look the same, what you wear on your back matters. This was the early 90s, so we're talking peg jeans, guest brand clothing, which I didn't have and I didn't fit in. And the opportunity came up for me to be able to switch middle schools. And I grabbed it, even though it was scary, and went. And I ended up at a middle school that had 32 primary languages in it. And when the language that you speak, when the color of your skin is different, what you're wearing on your back ceases to be relevant at all. And I had the privilege of being in an English language learning classroom as a teaching assistant, even though I was a student myself. And my students there who came from unbelievable backgrounds, refugee crises, had lived so many miles before they came to my middle school and they opened up my world to what was out there. So every time I had the opportunity to do so, I became an exchange student. So you received your BA from Stanford. How was your experience there? extremely fortunate. It's an amazing institution to be a part of. And it also felt like I needed more exposure to the rest of the world outside Stanford. So while I was in there my first year, I was a part of a very intensive program called Structured Liberal Education, where you read the great works of Eastern and Western civilization in a year. It included a film section. We lived together, learned in the dorms. And then as soon as that was over, I went to Chile, where I was an exchange student for the first time, and then went to Oxford, where I was an exchange student for the second time at the university. And those experiences really shaped how I see the world. Tell me a little bit about what were some of the highlights there? So I went to Chile thinking I was going to research the role of the women's movement in overthrowing the Chilean dictator Pinochet. When I got down there, though, that wasn't what captured my attention. It was the impact that Pinochet had left on Chile. A quick refresher of Chilean history, 1973, Salvador Allende is the democratic elected socialist president of the country of Chile. In the streets, people are rioting, wanting more food. The generals take over in a military coup led by Augusto Pinochet. Allende uh, commits suicide September 1973. And fast forward in time, Pinochet eventually steps down as commander-in-chief of the armed forces, assumes the position of senator for life due to a series of constitutional reforms. And I was living in a host family that had a silver framed photograph of him up with their family members. Yet the students that I met at the University of Chile had relatives who were still disappeared and had no idea what was going on. And I thought, how could anyone study anything like this? So I go back to Stanford and Pinochet travels to London, has tea with his old friend, Margaret Thatcher, 
goes in for a back surgery and is arrested as he's recovering from this back surgery, pending extradition to Spain. So I was fortunate enough to be able to follow him. I went to Oxford and continued to research that, and that eventually became my thesis, is head of state immunity for human rights perpetrators. Wow, that's fascinating, Laura. What did you do after Stanford? I think you went to business, right? That's right. I had a degree in political science, and Arthur Anderson had a division called Global Corporate Finance. And because my area of focus was international relations, I felt like I understood the global, and they had the best training programs in corporate America. They taught me what I needed to know in order to be a restructuring and turnaround financial advisor. So what was the moment that you decided to pursue your executive MBA, especially at the rival school of Berkeley Haas? There could have been no other MBA for me than Berkeley Haas, because Berkeley Haas is a values-led MBA. Haas has a really strong culture of what we call the defining leadership principles. Question the status quo beyond yourself, confidence with humility, and students always. And I knew that what I wanted to do was surround myself with like-minded individuals who held those values close. What I didn't know is that they would become the group that challenged me, that pushed me out of my comfort zone, that thought bigger for me than at the time I was capable of doing for myself. So part of your studies, you also led an eye track, an Israel track. You brought your peers to Israel. What was the motivation behind this? So I went to Israel for the first time in the year 2000 um, with my then boyfriend, now husband. And to me, it was the most fascinating place on earth. I've been told that Tel Aviv means old and new or old and spring. And I feel like Israel is this fascinating juxtaposition of the old with the new. I'm not Jewish, and I didn't grow up with a strong religious framework. So going to Jerusalem for the first time for me was a really, and remains, I think, to this day, a very challenging experience. The air feels different there. There's something about it that keeps calling me back that I want to learn more about, that I want to explore in greater detail. And so we spent a year on sabbatical there. My husband was doing some field research for one of his books. We brought our family there. Our kids spent a year in the local public schools. And later in time, I went back for my executive MBA. I was almost 40 when I did. And the opportunity came up to lead an iTrack. And I'm an educator at my core. And I thought, you know, bringing 30 highly successful executives in their own right to Israel and letting them have the opportunity to take this place that they've read about so much in the news and understand that it's a real place, that people live there, they raise their children there, and it's deeply complex and endlessly fascinating, but going and letting them just see for themselves and choose for themselves. It was an opportunity to not only share that, but share a part of myself with my classmates too. Can you share one moment with your peers in Israel, how it impacted them or you? In Israel, you can be in one hour dipping your toes in the Mediterranean. And at the next, we were in the Golan overlooking Syria and had the opportunity to do an ATV ride really close to the Syrian border, came back and Miri Eisen came and spoke with our class. And to be able to hear from someone who was so deeply knowledgeable and hearing the echoes of the bombs going off in Syria and the deep human tragedy and trauma that were happening right across the border, that's a moment I'll never forget. 
how did you start your career at Berkeley and what did you want to do there? When I left my MBA program, I had four goals for my career. And this was endlessly frustrating, I think, for my good friends in the career management group of the business school who are used to asking, what industry do you want to work in or what position do you want? And I wasn't able to answer those questions. But the four things that I was looking for were, one, I wanted to work closely with a leader that I deeply respected and admired. Two, it needed to be in service of a cause that I cared about. Three, I hoped we'd be doing something that no one had ever tried to do before. And four, perhaps just putting a box around it to make it even more challenging as I put this wish out into the universe. My mom at the time was struggling with her final round of terminal cancer, and it had to be part-time. It was really important to me. She was my best friend to spend those last days with her. So I put those four things out into the universe and told everyone. And as she was recovering from what was ultimately her final surgery, one of my colleagues passed me an email that let me know that the former dean of my business school was assuming a new position in a newly created office of innovation and entrepreneurship at UC Berkeley. And I remember sitting by my mom's bedside and saying that I don't know what that's going to be, but this is exactly what I want. So you finally now lead the Berkeley Changemaker. Tell me a little bit about the program and how it came to be. In the Office of Innovation and Entrepreneurship, which started in 2019, beginning of 2020, we talked a lot about how the word entrepreneur was a narrow word, and not all of our students at UC Berkeley saw themselves as entrepreneurs, even though they come from tremendously entrepreneurial communities. So it was all about helping our students to make the mental shift from they do that to I do that. And somehow the word changemaker really resonated. I have a colleague at the business school, Alex Budak, who teaches a course called Becoming a Changemaker. And we were very much inspired by the changemaker ethos. And when you put the word Berkeley in front of it, Berkeley changemaker, that means something distinctive. I'm fortunate enough to be fourth generation UC Berkeley. And my family's come to Berkeley for generations because Berkeley has uplifted families for generations. And so Berkeley Changemaker is something that I feel is just so unique. And the program started with a course. We launched it in the summer of the pandemic. And like all of our now 25-some courses, it teaches what we call the three Cs, critical thinking, communication, and collaboration. Starting a new program at a school like Berkeley or any corporation, I'm sure you face a lot of challenges. What were some of the challenges that you've dealt with? One of the challenges is that we are not an academic department. So this means that we can't offer our own classes. So you heard me say the three C's of critical thinking, communication, and collaboration. We need to collaborate across disciplines with our colleagues in academic departments and ensure that they're getting the same benefit out of offering the classes that we do. And what's been really fascinating for us and what we've been really fortunate about is that the students who take our Berkeley Changemaker courses are more diverse on every metric that UC Berkeley tracks than the general undergraduate population. So we have more students who come from low-income backgrounds. We have more underrepresented minority students. We have more students who are the first in their families to come to college. And so we actually have departments across campus coming to us because they want to diversify the mix of students who take their courses. But it's definitely been a challenge to mount these classes. And we, to date, are entirely philanthropically funded 
or funded by the revenue that we're able to generate through running things like summer programs for high school students and so on. Do you enjoy it? I have a really phenomenal job. I am so lucky to be able to wake up every day and do what I do. I work with some of the smartest people I have ever met. They are mission-driven, and we have the ability to work closely with our students who, when I'm reading the news and I'm thinking, how are we ever going to solve these complex challenges that our world faces? I have in front of me every day innovators, entrepreneurial thinkers who give me such hope and such optimism. The word innovation appears throughout your career. What does it mean to you? In our office, we think about innovation as new ideas put into practice. So it's not enough to just have that great new idea. In fact, some of these great new ideas are a dime a dozen. What you have to be able to do is to put it into practice. And that's where I think the magic happens. What are some of your future professional goals? I think one of the things I've learned that was really cemented in the pandemic is that it's really hard to plan more than a few years ahead. It's our goal that at least half of UC Berkeley students will have taken one of our courses by the time they graduate. We're at over 20%, so we're working our way there. But I'm continually looking for challenges. I'm looking for the next big impact. So let me know when you find it. Who or what inspires you? My kids imbue my life with a sense of meaning that I didn't have before. And my students embody and personify why I do what I do. Their creativity and their intelligence inspires me and gives me a sense of optimism and hope for our future. What does being a leader mean to you? Leadership is like a toolkit. There are a series of tools in our leadership toolkit that are appropriate to use in certain situations and others that aren't. And as a leader, we need to be skilled to figure out what that is. I learned that the best leaders, the greatest leaders, are those that paint a clear and compelling vision that inspires and motivates us to follow. As employees, we need to be clear on what our roles and responsibilities are and what part we play in executing that larger vision. And the great leaders that I've had a privilege to work with take the time to get to know what makes their employees tick provides the scaffolding and the clarity of purpose, and then steps out of the way to let their employees do what they do best. How do you define success? To me, success is really the wrong question. I think what we should be asking is, how do you live a life well lived? And for me, that answer is the quality and meaningful relationships that we have in our life. Harvard's done a longitudinal study, almost nine decades long, called the Study of Adult Development, in which they look at happiness. And what they determined is that one of the greatest determinants of happiness is meaningful and quality relationships. Laura Hasner, thank you so much for being on our show. Really an honor and a privilege. Thank you. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find a transcript of today's episode, along with past interviews, on our website, storymarkpodcast.org. 
Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter, where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up, and you can also follow us on Instagram, at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrek Studios. iTrek is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit iTrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Patrick Emil, and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening, and let's go out. See you next time.